Welcome to China in Context. I'm Duncan Bartlett. There have been many meetings between the leaders of Western countries since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Britain has been involved in most of them. Indeed, Prime Minister Johnson has twice visited Kyiv, and President Zelensky has addressed the Houses of Parliament in London. Britain's Defence Secretary Ben Wallace links the Russian invasion of Ukraine with the situation in East Asia. Ukraine matters because China is watching, said Mr. Wallace, before suggesting that the UK's adversaries and competitors will be carefully assessing the West's response. Yet British foreign policy, including that towards China, is being forged in fraught circumstances. Mr. Johnson and Mr. Wallace belong to a government which is losing favour, not just with the press and the public, but also among many of its own supporters. That led to a rebellion among MPs, which didn't quite oust the Prime Minister, but certainly left him politically damaged. So how do the UK's leaders intend to handle Chinese issues? And how much do they really understand China? I'm delighted to welcome to the China in Context podcast today, a guest who's noted for his astute analysis of the China-Britain relationship. He's Sam Hogg, founder of Beijing to Britain, the weekly briefing that examines UK-China relations. Sam, welcome to China in Context. Thanks for having me. Let's start with those remarks from the Defence Secretary Ben Wallace with regard to China. He said that China is effectively testing the West's resolve and the Ukraine situation highlights the dangers of a Chinese attack on Taiwan. How do his ideas fit the mood in Westminster? So I think uh, Mr. Wallace's analysis largely sums up the Westminster mood, actually. Um, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has very much brought the future of Taiwan front and center into the minds of many MPs and peers. Uh, And especially for many new MPs, this will be the first time they have to consider the concept of a strongman leader who doesn't play by the normal rules and rationale of geopolitics. So some newspapers say that if Mr. Johnson is prevented from continuing as prime minister, Mr. Wallace may run for the job. What do you make of that speculation? Um, I can see a situation where this happens. Uh, In the most recent sort of conservative home polling uh, of the cabinet and how popular they are with conservative voters, Mr. Wallace is leagues ahead. Um, With that said, I'm not sure how strong his party support is. And I also don't know if he has any skeletons in the closet, so to speak. Another name which has been suggested as a future Conservative leader is Jeremy Hunt, an MP who was Education Secretary. Now, Mr Hunt's been very critical of Mr Johnson personally. What's his view on Mr Johnson's foreign policy? I suspect that Mr Hunt and Mr Johnson have a very differing view of foreign policy. Um, As you know, both were formerly Foreign Secretaries, but Mr Hunt recently highlighted that any future Tory leader needs three things, integrity, competence and vision. And I'll leave it to your listeners to decide if any of those guiding principles have seeped through into Johnson's approach to foreign policy. Well, that's an interesting observation. I do remember, of course, a famous story about Jeremy Hunt when he went to Beijing and he met the uh, Chinese uh, state councillor and foreign minister, Wang Yi. And uh, Jeremy Hunt said, uh, my wife is Japanese. No, I mean Chinese. What a terrible mistake to make. (laughs) It was a slip of the tongue, but it certainly got a few headlines at the time. (laughs) A bad day. (laughs) But, you know, the mood seems very different now to a few years ago when there was a tussle between two groups in the Conservative Party. There were the so-called hawks 
on China on one side and the doves on the other. And some of the doves were in very senior positions, um, including the uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer and uh, even the Prime Minister David Cameron himself. Are there any doves left? In terms of where we're at now, I actually find the definitions of hawk and dove and the terms of hawk and dove quite um, unhelpful in this case, especially because the hawks, if you want to call them that, tend to use the uh, term dove as an accusation increasingly. So the way that I try and frame it is more people who are guided by a majority values-led, quote-unquote, approach to uh, the relationship with China, which puts a very strong emphasis on human rights, and those who are pushing for a more real politic approach, which involves keeping China at the table through diplomacy and trade. And I would say there's still quite a few in the latter, although they're not as publicly out there as the former. Okay, so there's an interesting um, differentiation there between people who put human rights as a priority and then people who put trade as a priority. Where does that leave the debate about security and defence? So the security and defence debate, I think, is presented increasingly as a human rights um, debate. So if you look around issues, including hike vision, the surveillance, the Chinese surveillance firm in the UK, there's a pushback against hike vision. And part of that comes from the fact that we can't guarantee that hike vision aren't involved in camps in Xinjiang. That's often presented as a reason for exclusion from the human rights camps in the UK. We've only really talked about the Conservative Party so far. Let's talk a little bit about attitudes towards China among the opposition. Sure. So interestingly, actually, Labour, the Lib Dems and the SNP all have a firmer line to take towards China than the government does. And that's obviously the privilege of being in opposition is you can take these lines if you want to. So Labour and the Liberal Democrats both believe that genocide is taking place in Xinjiang. And in Labour's case, they've asked for a number of actions from government, uh, including an expansion of Magnitsky sanctions, suspending uh, the economic and financial dialogue, and strengthening supply chain resilience in a more coherent manner, which actually puts them very much on the same level as many in the Tory backbenches. I think the, the message I've quite often heard from the Scottish nationalists uh, has also been one focused on, on human rights issues, again, criticising China for its treatment of uh, the Uyghurs in Xinjiang and uh, the rolling back of democracy in Hong Kong. That's exactly right, yes. So often you have these debates taking place in Parliament, which are critical of the government's approach to the UK-China relationship, and speaking against the government will be SNP, Lib Dem, Labour, and Tory backbenches. And for all intents and purposes, they may as well be singing from the same hymn sheet. Does China notice? Does it care what these politicians, especially the opposition politicians, say in the British Parliament? It's a long way from Beijing. It is a long way from Beijing. And uh, it's a great question and one that I'm probably not the right person to ask. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, let's think a little bit further than uh, London for a moment, because we know that President Xi had a phone call with Vladimir Putin in June and the Chinese state media report what they said, they say that China celebrated the fact that in the face of global turmoil and changes, China-Russia relations have maintained a good momentum of development. What are the political implications of that? I suspect in Westminster, many MPs and peers will read this in very simple and clear terms, which is that China is now aligned with Russia against the West. And that's despite the history between Moscow, Beijing and London. They will see this as China coming into partnership on some level with Russia. Uh, this will likely inform 
parliament's view and therefore the way it tries to exert pressure on government to act towards its relationship. How informed do you think the British MPs are about China? Do they have do they have a good knowledge, a good understanding of the situation? So this is a, a very contentious question uh, in the sense that it's very often discussed. I think in my experience, British MPs have a good surface level knowledge of where China fits in on the world stage, but it's a surface level knowledge. And very few have spent proper time in the country. Uh, very few have spent proper time with diaspora communities in the UK. Um, and they don't know much more about the PRC than your average uh, reader who consumed lots of media around China would. It is improving, though. Well, I can understand it. It's difficult, of course, to go to China at the moment. And uh, foreign politicians are not particularly welcomed unless they're prepared to praise the PRC. So I could see that they're having to take their knowledge from the media and so on. What do you think about the role of the media shaping opinion in China, you know, both among the public and among the politicians? So the British media plays an absolutely critical role in shaping narratives around China. Uh, And I would split this into two. I would split it into the foreign correspondents and industry reporters who cover the more um, factual-based stuff on China and and how China invests in the UK and that sort of thing, versus the commentariat who are primarily based in London, uh, who typically produce very poor commentary around uh, China issues. Regardless, it's often the commentariat stuff that I see being shared around WhatsApp groups or tweeted by MPs and peers. So the media plays a critical and sometimes negative role in shaping perception of China. It's interesting you say that because there's the China Research Group based in the Houses of Parliament, and uh, I'm on their mailing list, and they're always sending out articles by commentators from the broadsheet newspapers about China. Um, And they're not usually very complimentary about the Chinese uh, system or society. Yeah, exactly right. So the China Research Group itself, um, I can get very niche on this, is not really putting forward those comments itself. It's um, just, as you say, sharing what's there. But you don't have to be a China expert to provide commentary on China. And that is written large across our opinion pages. So what does Beijing to Britain aim to do in terms of disseminating news and information? Beijing to Britain aims to provide an objective overview of how China is being discussed in the UK. Uh, In effect, we hold a mirror up to Parliament and Fleet Street and reflect what's being spoken about, talked about and debated. And then furthermore, for our private clients, we then produce documents which add context and expert views in these short briefings. I should think you have a lot to work with because China's constantly being examined by uh, the the politicians and by the journalists on Fleet Street, isn't it? That's exactly right. And occasionally we get people saying that uh, Beijing to Britain is too pro-Beijing or too anti-Beijing. And the same answer comes in every time, which is that we simply hold up the mirror and reflect what is being spoken about there. And people can draw their own assumptions and analysis from that point. Oh, I can remember those debates taking place when I worked in the newsrooms of ITV and the BBC. (laughs) But look, um, there are some important meetings coming up at which Britain will be involved. Uh, In particular, I'm thinking about the NATO gathering in Spain uh, and the G7 meeting in Germany. How do you think other leaders will hear the messages coming from the UK, given what they know of the political problems facing the government in London? So that's a great question. And I personally feel this current administration has significantly undermined the UK's credibility on the world stage, both by breaking international law and with the ongoing carnage at home. However, 
That being said, the UK's response to Ukraine seems to have been widely praised outside the UK too. And so I suspect world leaders will look at what we bring to the upcoming conferences and upcoming events, looking past the more eye-rolling parts of it, and instead focusing on what they need to do to build coherent functioning strategies for the next decades with regard to China. Well, I can see that creates a great deal of work for the diplomats helping uh, to represent Britain internationally. Look, thank you, Sam, for engaging with all those interesting questions. That's Sam Hogg, founder of Beijing to Britain. This podcast is made by the SOAS China Institute, part of the University of London. And you can find out more about our courses and research at soas.ac.uk. But for now, that's all from us here, the China in Context podcast team.